Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, the podcast where we explore assisted reproductive technology, how it changes lives and our world, and actually, quite honestly, just the stories around anybody who is touched any part of assisted reproductive technology. And it's just, well, actually even beyond that, quite honestly, because sometimes it's not assisted reproductive technology and the story is still really interesting and and fun to talk about. Obviously, as we are coming up to Father's Day, there are lots of people who want to be parents and it's a pretty awesome thing. So uh, tell me, Father's Day. What does it mean to you? Do you have Ooh. a father? Do you love your father? Oh wait. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, all those things. Um, I have a father, and I'm very grateful for him and um, everything he's done to raise me and continue to be a big part of my life and my children's lives. That's been been great. Um, you might know him. He, I, your, I your, might. Your father too. You know. What? According to the DNA test we did, I guess. We did do DNA tests, and I will have everybody out there know that Ellen, up until the very last second, held out that I was not related to her or our father. (laughs) Until I got the proof back, she still told me that I I was adopted. Which, again, not that there's anything wrong Um, with that. That just would have meant I was brought into the family by love. From aliens that had landed (laughs) in New Mexico from Roswell. That's what I assumed that that made the most sense. It it does. Um, But, yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes, though, the cool thing is that being a father is not necessarily about DNA and genetics and stuff like that. That is true. um, I feel like our interview today is especially illustrative of that because uh, we have Eve and we, we do have a little bonus little episode at the end with Steve and talks about their parent relationship and how it came to be. And I think it's a really, really cool and interesting topic to, to listen to. I agree. Welcome, Eve Wiley. I'm so excited that you are joining us on the podcast. Um, Just to give a little preview for everyone of what we have to come, I have to say Eve's story is absolutely mind-blowing. And at the same time, she is a complete hero and inspiration for me. So I'm so excited to, to talk to you directly. Welcome, Eve. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into the the ins and outs and twists and turns, do you want to give a little intro and background of your of you and kind of your upbringing? So my name is Eve Wiley. I always feel like I'm um, doing like an AA session when I um, open with that. Um, <laughs> Stand up. I, am, <laughs> I know, right? Well, I'm, I'm a counselor. Hold on. I'm not an alcoholic. Um, <laughs> I am from a really small town in East Texas called Center. And it's about 5,000 people. It's kind of in the middle oh, of nowhere. It's really small. Yeah. So right. tiny. So tiny. When I say Friday Night Lights, it is literally Friday Night Lights. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, really tiny. And yeah, so that's where I grew up, Life Behind the Pine Curtain. I went to college in Austin, Texas, and then I did my um, graduate work here in Dallas. And now I am a stay-at-home mother to two children. I have a son, Hutton, who is four, and a daughter, Scarlett, who's two. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Busy. Oh. Real busy on here. I'm potty training, so I'm yeah. pulling out. Oh, <laughs> no. I'm with you. I tried, tried bribing with chocolate this morning and it was, yeah. But um, So 
You had a mother and a father um, growing up, but you lost your father fairly early. Is that is that right? Yes. So um, I did. So so my dad passed away when I was seven years old from cardiomyopathy, which is a heart disease. And um, yeah, but he he and my mother have a natural child. Um, after they struggled with infertility for years, they were able to conceive naturally when I was four months old. So oh, wow. we are Irish twins, 14 <laughs> months apart. My mother tells me it's more difficult than, than twins. Oh, no. Because <laughs> you're right in different developmental stages. But um, yeah, so we were r- real close together, back to back. Yeah. But did you know growing up, I would say what your, your – since you obviously say you have a natural – so you know, they had a natural child. Obviously, there's a differentiation between you. Did you know that difference growing up? I did not. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I recognized that my sister and I, we didn't look alike. I didn't look much like my dad, Doug. Um, I think that there was kind of like that thought unknown that was always there, but I just, I didn't have the, you know, brain capacity to really understand what that meant. It wasn't until I was 16 years old that I found out that I was donor conceived. I was oh, wow. going through my mother's emails because I was incredibly nosy as a child. <laughs> were you, um, I were, was you at home? were you just at home on the computer or where was that? Yes. So my, my mom is at the time she's a school nurse. And so I had a habit of combing through all of her emails as a way of snooping to get juicy gossip on my cohort Oh. Or, I don't know, <laughs> like a teacher emailed her an unfavorable email. I could just, you know, oops, delete it. <laughs> and so I had a habit of doing that. And um, at, at this point, I had uncovered some communication that my mother had to California Cryobank. And initially, you know, y'all, I'm from a small town. Um, my... I thought that my my mother was doing something with my grandfather's cattle as far as like artificial insemination. So I just oh, wow. assumed that that's what those emails were about until oh. I saw my birth date and then a quick Google search. And then and you're like, the cattle yeah. has the same birthday as me? Is that- I knew no. that right. I was like, something's not <laughs> right here. Like, this is- and why from California? What do they know about Charlie Gals? So yeah, the, the 16-year-old naivus uh, melted away pretty quickly after that. So then you start opening those emails. I did. And I, I started to go through them. And, you know, it, it's interesting. It's, I, I will give like the best mother analogy I can for it. And this has happened twice in my life. Um, you know, when you're putting the car seat in with that little, you're trying to like click it in and you're just kind of like mm-hmm. shoving it in and in and in. And it finally it's clicks. Not working. <laughs> yeah. And it finally clicks. You're like, oh, there it is. It was kind of like that feeling of like, oh my God, everything makes sense. Like yeah. I. You know, it wasn't some. That's why I don't look like, like my dad. That's why I don't look as close to my sister. Right. Exactly. That. That's why our interests are different. We we don't look alike. Um, yeah. So it, just, it kind of made sense as soon as as soon as I saw that. But this was also exciting for me in in a weird way. Um, you know, my my dad had passed away. You know, so long before that that. Um, you know, my, my social construct and narrative of a father has always been kind of fluid. And so this was exciting for me. Who is this person? And, um, and then just trying to identify it because now it became an undefined relationship and just yeah. trying to did find you, that person. Did you 
confront your mom at that point? Yeah, how did I, that go? I did. <laughs> so here's the other side of it that I saw some of the communication is that Glamour Magazine was um, doing an article over donor-conceived offsprings. And she had kept asking me to go pick this up when I went to the store. And so that was kind of my lead-in with that. Mm. Um, but then I told her, I was like, I know Doug's not my dad. And she was getting ready in the morning. And... Um, and she just started bawling. And I was like, Aww. mom, it's, it's okay. Like, I'm, I'm not mad. I'm not sad. I'm, you know, this, this just, it, it is what it is. And I, and I want to know more. I want to, I want to know who knew who this is. Um, and, and that's really all I remember from that moment. I don't think that, you know, some of those typical donor conception, um, um, you know, complex feelings that donor conceived feel. I don't think that a lot of those, um, the complexities of those didn't come out until I was way older. So she wasn't, she didn't ground you for snooping through her emails? No, <laughs> like that she be, didn't. She'd be um, mad at yeah. you. Oh, no. I know. I think she was just thankful that I was not angry <laughs> or just like, uh, you know, because I did kind of spring it on her. <laughs> but yeah, that's how right. I found out. And it's out. interesting and, there's a reversal that you were comforting her, that she was upset. Right. But don't you think that's kind of, you know, the thing that happens, at least what I see is that, you know, we, we do become so protective over recipient parents. And, um, for me, I had the luxury of having a very open and honest mother who really trusted me to do what I wanted. And she was supportive of that. So in no way did she feel threatened by my desire to know my other biological parents. And, you know, I often say that this is really important for someone who's, who's donor conceived is to have that space where you, you can kind of go through the complexities of this, but you can also exist in a warm and loving environment that doesn't feel conditional. And my mom recognized that, you know, she valued having a biological child and had a desire to do that so much so they chose that over adoption. But she also recognized my desire to know my other biological parents and, and how I valued that as well. And the two are not mutually exclusive. It's either valued or it's not valued. And for me, I was fortunate enough to have a parent who recognized that and then trusted me to, um, to do what I wanted to do and was supportive in that way. Did, did she explain to you, and this may be speaking to her and it have to be something you have to ask her more directly, but did she ever explain to you why she didn't tell you herself before then? She did. So when they went in, and you know, this is in the 80s, um, and this could be for a different reason, but um, the doctor was very adamant that, um, you know, this could damage my psyche. Uh, don't tell her that she's donor conceived. Oh. And this was kind of the thinking oh, at the time. Um, because, you know, masculinity is incredibly fragile. And so that's why they would tell their, um, you know, their patients, go home and have sex with your husband. No one will ever know because masculinity is fragile. You won't know which one it is, right? Or we're going to mix it or, you know, whatever it is. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just sweep it under the rug. She won't know any different. Just, you know, rear her in, in that way and everything's fine. Now, once my father got sick, Doug, um, and she started to recognize the importance of, um, you know, that, that medical information and, you know, that maybe that wasn't the case. That is when I was seven. So how do you tell a seven-year-old who doesn't have, you know, the brain functioning um, for really kind of like abstract uh, thoughts or concepts such as death? So it's like, well, that's not really your real dad because we use an anonymous sperm donor. So then you got to explain sperm, donor, sex. You really got to dive deep with that. <laughs> right. so that's Start hard. with sperm. Yeah, the timing right? is pretty crappy there. Right. Yeah, I can see that. So then at that point, it was just trying to figure out 
about, you know, she was gathering as much information as possible, didn't know the protocols. Um, and fortunately for me, she kept all of her medical records. So, you know, that is one hurdle that a lot of donor conceived, um, persons, they, they don't have the luxury of that because the records have been destroyed. Right. Now commercial DNA testing Did- has completely changed that, but it's still important. And I was fortunate that she had that. Did your mom have a profile for your donor? So what she had was one sheet of paper and, um, it listed donor number. Each each donor had one line. So oh, wow. donor number, physical characteristics, um, yeah. just their, uh, I think it was education and then mm-hmm. interest. So as my mom says, which, you know, this is just one of my favorite quotes from her is, um, <laughs> this was, I chose him because it was so alien to me, which I don't know why I find so funny. I just do. <laughs> Because he was interested in politics and and religion, and it was just so different. I saw anything. that quote. I thought yeah. that was hilarious. Like, that was like I thought that politics was cute. and yeah. film. I just yeah. didn't need it. <laughs> it was just so, so different. you should be very well rounded from that, right? <laughs> I know, right? You can just kind of see that, like that that thought process too. So I was like, "Do you mean foreign, mom?" But um, yeah. So so yeah. that that's all she had. <laughs> it's nothing like it is today, where you have sound bites and baby pictures and these like huge biographies and all this kind of thing. It was that one sheet of paper and she circled donor 106 and wrote this one on it. She kept that piece of paper in her jewelry box. That's pretty clear. I mean, that's very clear, right? (laughs) Well, she kept it in a jewelry box. She did. She kept it in the bottom of her jewelry box. Um, And I went through that thing so much and never found it because it was underneath the, you know, like velvet part. I kind of (laughs) discovered this a lot earlier. (laughs) (laughs) So what did she do with you next? I know you you wanted to reach out to him. Did she help you? How did that go? Yeah, she did. She's, you know, she was the one that was communicating with California Crime Bank and and trying to understand their protocols. Uh, what what we did is we were able to submit my mother's insemination records and we sent all of her medical records um, from this doctor. And they were able to go back and check their purchasing records to see if this doctor had purchased 106. And he did purchase it in 85. And I'm, you know, assuming that he just had it in a freezer somewhere, a cryo tank. And then they were able to look at the records where, you know, the date and all of this, donor 106, boom, boom, done. So what they did from that point is they they reached out to Steve and they asked him to update his medical records because I, I really didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted. I, I imagine that my mom was, you know, I mean, as a mother myself, having to watch her 18-year-old go through this or 19-year-old at the time, I would imagine she was feeling protective, but she never, she just, she always trusted me. And looking back, I can appreciate that now instead of trying to protect me. But they finally found him a year later, updated his medical records. And I also wrote a letter to him that basically said, you know, my name is Eve. I live in Texas. I'm financially secure. I'm not seeking anything like that. I just want to know more about you. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of, that's where we started. And then we started emailing back and forth once California Cryobank, you know, left the conversation and being the middleman. And then it turned into phone calls. And then he came to Austin to visit me. Oh. And it was just such a beautiful, natural progression. Oh. Like it, it never felt awkward or forced. It was just, and a part of that is because he is who he is and I am who I am. But he is just this, such a warm and loving individual and just so kind and and it just, it, it just, it felt right. So 
How was that first? Did meeting? your mom did meet him too? Was at the airport? Where where no, this happened? At a restaurant. <laughs> and and that part was well, Steve and I first met at my apartment when he flew to Austin. But um several months later, my mother came to Austin, Steve came back down, and and then I had to introduce them, which was just incredibly weird. That was so, so <laughs> weird. Because my mom was, you know, then she she was so anxious about it and you know, wanted to know so many yeah. questions. And, and I'm sure Steve was like, Whoa. <laughs> so so yeah. But yeah, we we all we all met. And that was thirteen years ago. Yeah. And everything developed from there. It did. We so I ended up uh, getting to know his social children and developing my own relationships with them. And when um, Blake and I, my husband, decided to get married, we we wanted to honor dad in you know some type of way. And so we decided to ask him to officiate our wedding. And, and he did. It was just a really beautiful celebration. And there was not a dry eye, except for me, because I didn't want to run oh. my pictures. Yeah. <laughs> Eyeliner. Yeah. Uh, the cocktail before probably helped a little bit. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was just really sweet. And, you know, my kids call him Papa. And we, we see him, you know, not as much as we would like, but, but we, we spend a lot of time together and talking on the phone and, and yeah, that's just, that's been our story for the last 13 years. And it's very much this, you know, fairy tale type story and it is not the norm, but you know, as with all fairy tales, there is a tragic element to it that we found out later. Right. So you, well, before you mentioned his, I was I was you mentioned the social, social children. children. Yeah. So the vocab do you have relationships with them? Oh yeah, too. that's actually true. Let's talk about the vocab first. Difference between, explain what you mean by social children so that everybody who's listening, if they don't know that word, what, what you mean by that. So social children would be the, um, the biological child that the donor has reared. Would you consider your mom's husband your social dad originally, though? It doesn't have to be biological. So it's just someone you're, right. you're raising. Right. So that would be how you would like socially introduce them in um, any relationship or explain any relationship. It's right. all confusing because it's like people use the word like diblings <laughs> right. and then people don't like that yeah, word. Diblings. So it's just so hard, right. which is why sometimes I have to explain oh, no. my story with pictures because even names are confusing. So I'm like dad one, two, and three <laughs> and the siblings, but no, those are Steve dad's two or dad three's sibling or children. And so it's just, it, it is also confusing. So it's just easier for me for organizational purpose to, to you. Are you writing a cartoon children's book to explain your family to your children? I mean, I would need to at this point. <laughs> I, I even get confused. I even get confused. Right. So did your, did his social children feel like your half siblings? They did. So Steve and I had a relationship for several years before his children um, ever learned about me. And at the time, his children were very, very young. And and this was something new for his wife as well. And she was being very protective of her family. And you know how how do we tell our children this and explain this to them? They were they were concerned. You know how are they going to take this information? They oh I wish Steve was here to tell the story. We'll have to ask him the story. But he sat them down and you know the daughter was like cool I have a sister and then one of the other sons was like that's cool what's for dinner Aww. and so I think there was like this huge buildup and it was like sweet <laughs> <laughs> and and then it was like oh well that was very anticlimactic okay all right good let's go eat dinner right. Uh- I would say, and I think that's a really interesting point too about his his wife, his later wife that of course came into the picture after he had donated. Like how 
so obviously she was protective at first. How is she, how is she now as everything has progressed and over the years? I mean, she, she's been great. She came to my wedding and, um, I mean, it, it was great. It, there wasn't, I, I didn't feel any different or any hesitation with her as well. I think that once we all kind of owned this and, and recognized that there was nothing threatening about, um, any of these relationships in the situation, then it made it her feel more comfortable, um, for her children, because I would be very protective of my children too. Who is this stranger? I don't know anything about them. And now we're about to let them enter our lives and our children are so young. And, you know, I I understand that as a parent, we have to be, especially in this day and age, have to be protective. Did he have any other donor conceived children have reached out to him by that point or later? No, I was the only one. And, you know, this was, when did we, we did the test last year and I did it and immediately connected with two half brothers. And at that point, I realized, you know, I could remember how emotional this was for us and how we kind of had to, you know, figure this out in our own terms, in our own way. I didn't want to be the middleman. So I had called dad and was like, hey, get on Ancestry. This gives you guys a direct line of communication so you can each decide what works best for you because everyone's situation is incredibly unique. Some donor conceived people are like, I wish I never would have learned this. This is too much for me right now. I can't face it. I don't want to know information. Other donor conceived person, that that's all they want is they, they want that connection with their biological parent. So it's just so unique to each person. And, and you know, we, we all all, um, we all, our experiences are, are all different. Did you guys do ancestry at the same time to kind of look into this that if there's others? We didn't. No, we didn't. Because I, I think that it's interesting that, you know, at the time my, my son was really sick and I was so focused on him and his health and so sleep deprived and, you know, he's having these weird things and lots of surgeries. So I wasn't as, curious about any other half siblings or anything like that. You know, for me, half siblings are, you know, great and I would have loved to connect with them, but I had already identified my biological father. So that was kind of the end goal. Everything else was just kind of a plus. And so I, I wasn't really focused on that. And so I did ancestry because I, I don't know, got it for Christmas. But when my son's doctor was like, hey, let's get some genetic variation information on your son instead of putting him under for a seventh <gasps> surgery before oh. his fourth birthday. Oh my God. So I knew it was heartbreaking and they were going to go in and do biopsies. And we got that information back and it was like, oh, you know, he has an autoimmune disorder. And, and they were like, that's genetic. And I was like, well, that's weird. Nobody in our families have that. And then I connected with, um, with a first cousin that I assumed was a half sibling, but also with the ancestry results, I I didn't understand like what the hell are cinnamorgans? I had no clue what these platforms are like. I'm like, if it tells me close family, oh, I guess that's close family. Um, you know, I, I, I'm still learning about the websites, but there was also so much noise in my life that I didn't have the time to really sit down and look at it. Mm -hmm. So what did that, what did that test show? So I, so like I said, I, I connected with my two half brothers and they both knew that they were donor conceived and this was a part of their story. And, and I was so excited. I was like, more, this is awesome. Were they, were they nearby? Did you meet in person? Um, no, I talked to them on the phone. Uh, one is in San Antonio and the other one is in Nacogdoches, which is the area that I grew oh. up. And yeah, it was, it was really cool. Yeah. And, um, 
And then the other one, I finally, I reached out to you and, and of course he's like not on social media, doesn't use the messaging. It's like last login was like a year prior. Um, so I finally found him on LinkedIn. Um, so that's another tool guys out there looking. That's the most checked one. (laughs) So talking to him and, you know, here I am thinking, kind of feeling bad that I'm telling him that he's donor conceived. I'm like, oh, you're my half brother. And he's, he had no idea. Oh, no. no idea. And so, you know, we're kind of talking through this and the circumstances of it. And, and I was like, well, let's go back and look. So we pull up our profiles again and I went and typed the relationship in DNA painter. And I was like, okay, well, it looks like we could be first cousins. Tell me about your uncles. Mm-hmm. He said, well, I have one uncle who's actually from your area Mm. and um, his name is Kim McMorris. And I was like, oh my God, that's my mom's fertility doctor. You knew knew that name. I knew immediately. This man was was always kind of a bit of a hero for my parents. He was the person that got my parents pregnant. He was the person that delivered us. You know, you, you put so much trust, um, into your doctors and you spend so much time with them. And when you're going through infertility, you're in such a vulnerable place and you trust that they are going to do what's best for you. And so I knew, and I'm from a small area, a small town. I knew exactly who this man was. And then I kind of went into this space of like, this isn't right there, you know, like justifying it of like, no, this is like a weird coincidence. His you know, uncle's actually the donor or Steve, there's, there's just something that wasn't right. But then I built out my, um, my mirror tree with all of the, you know, first cousin, second cousin, third cousins. And there was only one person and it was him. Now I didn't tell Steve right away. Um, yeah. because I just, I, I couldn't, right. <laughs> I wasn't had there Steve yet. Had done a DNA test by then? So he had sent his off. Mm-hmm. So we were still waiting the six weeks. Okay. Only from the conversation of, Hey, we have half siblings, like, you know, go and do this. So y'all have a platform to talk instead of me being mm-hmm. the little man. I don't want to pressure anyone or, you know, him, I want you guys him to thinking, I have other biologically related people, children out there. Right. And, and I thought that I found the third one and, and that wasn't the case. Oh, so were you the one that ultimately told him? I did. Right after that, my, um, my, my mom, my husband and my in-laws were upstairs watching a movie. So I ran up there and I told my mother and telling my mom and telling dad, those were the two, oh gosh, most devastating parts of this entire story. Um, my mom, I've never seen someone go in shock before. Oh. And she was, she was in shock. She was shaking. She was repeating herself my, wow. to the point where my husband was like, do I need to call an ambulance? Oh, wow. I mean, it, it was awful. And, and then I, like I said, I, I went down, I built out the mirror tree. I was just trying to gather more information. And then as soon as we got closer to the date of getting the email back, um, confirmation wise, I knew I had to tell him. So I, I called him. And, and, and I told him and it was awful. I mean, just having to listen to him cry and, you know, start the grieving process of it. It was devastating. It was absolutely devastating because this has been our life for 13 years. 13 years of being your father than to say we're not biologically connected. Yeah. This is the thing that brought us together is not, it's not true. Right. But, but, and, and then it starts all over is, you know, I kind of moved in this, um, 
this kind of space of like, kind of back to an identity crisis. Like I'm starting over again. I'm 31 years old and I'm starting over again. And the best way I can explain it is, you know, when you're playing Jenga and you have, you take the, one of the you know bricks from the bottom mm-hmm. and, and then you're trying to figure out, you know, the balance because it's so discombobulating the balance before it topples over. And if you are born with your DNA and your biology, that's all you're born for. That is the foundation of your identity. And having to figure out how to assimilate and accommodate this back into my sense of identity and my social um, construct and narrative can be incredibly difficult. So it was a challenge because now I'm not just dealing with, you know, typical donor conceived um, challenges. Now I'm doctor conceived. Now I'm on a different island. Which is fascinating right. that, that's, that that's now become a term that because so, so <laughs> many right. people who are donor conceived oh. are finding that it was their mother's Maybe doctor. doctor it's their yeah. DNA that there's now this doctor conceived term. Just crazy. Mm-hmm. So how? Absolutely. So you decide to reach out to the doctor. I do. And how did that go? Oh, um, you know, it it took, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, but how many drafts of that letter (laughs) did you write? uh, It it took a while. Well, cause you know, I think of like the processes of it too, you know, emotionally, where was I at this point? You know, I was, I was angry, but then having to recognize that, okay, anger is the bodyguard for pretty much every other emotion. So having to peel back the layer and process through all those emotions and really get to the core of what I was upset about was, is that, you know, I didn't consent to this. I, I, I felt like I didn't deserve something like this in my life. And, um, and, and that, that was hard. Like, why am I starting over again? So really, you know, kind of honing in on that lack of control is initially what kind of empowered me of, you know what, actually I get to have control now. I get to decide how the rest of the story plays out. And I recognized that I didn't want to be a part of his legacy. I wanted him to be a part of mine. And so that was kind of the fork in the road where I really, that, that empowering moment, that catalyst of change where I got to decide what to do. And, and I really needed medical information for my son. Even though we had kind of pieced everything together, I wanted to know what else is there? Like I have a four-year-old who's about to go under for surgery again. And now Mm. mama bear is mad. (laughs) So, you know, because now it's not just me he's affecting, he's affecting my children. So I drafted the letter. It probably took a thousand drafts. Um, And I'm trying to remember exactly what it said, but basically it was like, you know, I did the genetic testing and you're my biological father after my parents consented and selected to donor 106. It was a very um, blunt letter of these are the facts. And, um, you know, he wrote back this long smoke and mirror thing of, um, you know, this was the thinking at the time. And, you know, he had remembered the motility rates of Steve's sperm. They were not thawing properly. So he went back to his uh, medical school and got his sperm vials from when he was a donor that would have been at least 10 years before I was conceived. Even though, that? no, he didn't know his donor number. <laughs> like, I know this industry is not regulated, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that on the 2020 where he, they were saying, oh, he went back to his own samples from college. No. I just thought, that's not believable. That's not when it's sitting why, fresh right there. I don't right, think so. Right. Oh my God. And if the I'm motility sorry. wasn't good, why not just go back to your mom and be like, you picked a donor that isn't going to work. Go f- pick another donor. Right. Well, and we know now that Steve has seven offspring. 
in between the two years. So how do you have seven kids and then you were just done thawing it and it wasn't working for you? But here's the thing. If there was, if there was truly nothing wrong with what this doctor did, then why didn't he tell my parents, Hey, this isn't working. Frozen's not working. Let's, let's, let's use mine. How would the conversation have gone at that point? Because it's gross. Um, because, yeah. It would have yeah. <laughs> yeah. been like, oh, during no, the 2020. forward my records. <laughs> yeah. During the 2020 episode, they interview this professor, Judith Darr, who is also a big hero of mine. And I think she very profoundly discusses that for a doctor to do that, he needs to have that conversation with his patients and be very clear that they want that genetic connection with their doctor. And that clearly is not a conversation that took place. No. And from my you know, mother's uh, recollection of things, when he asked her, do you want to use a local donor? She explicitly said no, because oh. of the biodiversity concerns associated with that. Mm-hmm. If it's, Especially the small, small, small town, right? right? Like, they could be dating your half-sibling. Ex- I mean, can you imagine? If, if she's not supposed to tell me, and, and then there are other people using this program, she doesn't even know who the other half siblings are. And if we are naturally drawn to someone that we are related to, could that be misinterpreted? So there's a huge biodiverse biodiversity concern with that as well. Yes. Okay. So he says, I use an old sample because it matches kind of what they were looking for. And this is all how it worked back then. How did you respond? No, 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 no. I'll tell you how I responded. <laughs> bullshit, bullshit, more bullshit. Did you say that? I can't believe you that. Oh my gosh. No, we don't have to believe. It's all right. It's a podcast. It's, it's, it's bullshit. It is bullshit. That I no, I didn't. I did not believe that for a second. And you did know, you call him on it? Like, did you write him back and say like, "You're this is not this is not true." But yeah, no one believes I, this. I, I think that my the response to that because there were there were many many emails and letters and um, there was a lot of correspondence. But at, at one point, I did tell I did bring up the point that my parents explicitly consented to donor one hundred six and donor thirty five in mixing with um, my dad's Doug's sperm and not to his. To which his response was um, that he told her about the local donor program. She he thought that she understood that, which is incredibly degrading because my mother, the quote, local woman. donor program is his, is himself. Like I am the local donor exactly. program. I use my own. And, and let's be ah. clear here. This man is her doctor. He is not her donor. And my, my mother is a, a registered nurse. So she understands this. It, that's what kind of surprised me. And I thought it was really degrading that, that he, I, I thought she understood this. Really? I think she would have remembered something like this. I think so. I have seen that. Actually, I've seen that excuse a couple times and a couple, not, nobody has the same story exactly as yours, but Mm -hmm. I've seen a couple similar ones that have been out in the press and that that is what the doctors come back with universally. I thought they understood. Really? Like that's, that's your, you just. I'm using an anonymous uh, donor, wink, wink, and you're supposed to know, actually, it's me. Well, at at the time, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have desktops. In their heads, there was no way they were ever going to get caught, ever. 
unless you'd have to go and get like, you know, blood or a hair sample or something. I mean, there, there was no way to lead it back to them at that point. So I just think that he didn't think he was going to get caught. And I know that a lot of people say, oh, but you know, it's an anonymous sperm donor. What does it matter? It matters because this is about consent. This is about transparency. This is about trust. And when you are in that vulnerable state and you are trusting your doctor to do what's best for you, them doing something other than you consented to because that is all you have control over is selecting that donor. That, that's it. It is so incredibly important. And then other people will say, you know, oh, we got doctor's genes. Like, you know, you should be lucky you're alive. Oh, my God. I'm like, we're not talking about me being alive. <laughs> we're talking about consent, right. transparency, trust. I mean, I feel like a broken record sometimes. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sure you've had that pushback and you're having to deal with that criticism. Like, a look, you're, you're smart and beautiful. You right. should be so thankful. Yes. And grateful. You should be grateful. This man gave you life. It's like, again, that's not what, and I feel like the interesting thing for me is after coming forward with this, a lot of people don't want to come forward. And I know why, um, because there, there's not a civil cause of action. There's not a criminal cause of action. There's no measurable accountability for these doctors that do this because there's nothing, um, that this doesn't fit the fact pattern of everything or of anything. And so, what do you come forward for? You come forward so you can have the social feedback from people that don't really understand. And um, it, it's incredibly disruptive to your life and it can be embarrassing. But I recognized very early on that I had to really process, um, and this was difficult, the illegitimacy component of this. My existence is a direct reflection on this man's character. So us having a genuine and authentic relationship was not going to be likely because um, this is a reflection on him. So once I, I really processed kind of that illegitimacy part, I recognized that the only healing to take place from this was to make this bigger than myself. And with infertility rates rising, the fact that the fertility industry is essentially unregulated, self-regulated. Um, LGBTQ community, we could argue that 100% of the time has to use these. Women are deciding to have children um, on their own. And, you know, our, our culture and society is changing. This is a popular choice because people recognize and desire to have that biological connection to a child. That's why they choose this over adoption. But there's nothing in place to protect these vulnerable people from bad actors. And I invited the doctor, my biological father, to join me in this. Let's do this together. Let's, this is the healing that takes place is by us joining forces. And we can talk about forgiveness and all of that. But more than that, we can talk about how if this was a thinking at the time, it was wrong. And, and, and look at what we are doing together to fix that, to mend that, to make this place a better place than when we found it. And that is, that is so impressive and so mature that like, to invite really him to is. join you oh, to say, you. look, you did something really wrong, but I want you to join with me to, to make the world a better place and to fix make this it problem. Right for everybody else in the future. Right. Yeah. Well, how did, I, I how did he respond? But there's power in that too, right? Yeah. And sure. I think that people would have, it would have looked a lot better with um, me by his side whenever all of this broke um, than you know, just isolating himself. Um, he did not. He told me, or actually rather he told ABC, because um, at this point our communications were, we weren't speaking anymore. He was speaking through a lawyer. Um, did you ever meet in person? 
Did you ever meet in no, person? No, we didn't. He asked multiple times yeah. to meet in person, but I really wanted everything in writing at this point. Mm-hmm. And I asked him mm-hmm. to call me, but he multiple times, but he would never call me. Um, so everything was just by writing. Everything's by writing. But he wanted to bring his son to come meet me. I, I thought that it was weird that you would put two on one. And I think that he just really wanted to contain this. And that is not the path that I had identified. So um, I didn't want you know, I did, this was the conflicting part with this is I desperately wanted to know this man's my biological father. This was a very difficult and painful decision for me to make to come forward because maybe we could have had some resolution. It was going to be nothing like what I've had with dad, Steve, but you know, maybe we could have gotten there in some capacity. Um, and, and that's just not, that's not what I chose. And I didn't want to be convinced otherwise, because I do recognize the importance of knowing your biological parents in that relationship. And I think that that is really important. The interesting thing is, is that what I have done is the exact opposite of what I normally advocate for, for donor conceived people. Um, but his, his answer was that um, there is no need for any legislation or laws. Um, there's no need for advocating for anything like this because the AIDS epidemic ended all donor programs. And people, what? unless unless you're a part of the LGBTQ community or if you've had some sort of cancer, people just don't use these technologies anymore. That's not even close wow. to true. So I went and fact-checked real quick with Dr. Google, and he told me otherwise. <laughs> yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was no, like, really? You don't think I can Google things? Come on. If so, anything, it's so on the rise. It's the other way. Uh, it, right. it, it absolutely is. Artificial reproductive um, technologies are only becoming more popular. Right. And, it's just um, another, another option that more, people are more informed by when they go through right. infertility. You could use a donor. Exactly. But something else he also said was that um, he acknowledged, he said that donor anonymity laws prohibited him from um, releasing the identity of the donor even if it was the physician and it is not a crime. So he knew that. He knew it. Wow. Mm, what donor anonymity laws? I know, right? right? <laughs> or, agreements, or agreements, <laughs> guess, whatever okay. it is. And, I, and once Except again, there was no agreement. Yeah, there was no agreement. I, like they, you, My yeah. mom had an agreement with California Cryobanks donor anonymity. Right. Not, with, right. not with him. He's, not, he's right. not her donor. He's her doctor. Right. Oh, oh my God. So, that, uh, that is nuts. No. So what did you do? How did you start this huge <laughs> political movement to get a, a bill um, drafted and move forward? Right. So to be honest with you, I um, <laughs> realized very quickly that I was more concerned about my top 10 friends in my space than I was to pay attention to government class. So <laughs> I didn't really know how any of this worked. I contacted a friend, which I think I said earlier, and he was a lawyer and he got back to me and was like, there's nothing. I mean, there, there's not a criminal cause of action. There's not a civil cause of action. There's, there's nothing um, that includes this fact pattern. And I was appalled by that. Absolutely appalled that. So ethically you can't sleep with your patients, but 
you can have a child with them without their consent. You can put their, your sperm inside of them. Exactly. That's like, hold on. This is, this is wrong. You feel like there's there's got to be some medical regulation, if nothing else, that stops a doctor from performing a procedure that right. the patient didn't consent to. Well, you would think that it would be... Um, <sighs> you know, malpractice, for example, but not, it's right. not because of, you know, torrent reform. It's not. So the best way I've heard it explained is if you're a doctor and you have your phone and you accidentally leave it inside of them, that's medical malpractice. Now, while they're under, if you take that phone and you intentionally hit them on top of the head, that's assault. So that is kind of how this bill came about is, and, and that's ultimately what the, the author, Dr. or not Dr. Um, Senator Huffman ended up drafting the language for this. But after I talked to the lawyer, I went to my state representative. Cause again, I, I didn't know how any of this worked. And this was interesting. Um, he asked me who, where this happened and who the state rep was for that. And I told him and he was like, Oh yeah, man, you know, he's my buddy. And, um, you know, we work a lot on things. Um, thanks for telling me your story. And wait, 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 the doctor, sorry, are you, the your state, state rep, rep the, the doctor is his buddy. The, no, the state representative for the doctor in Nacogdoches, the state representative. Oh. Of, and, and then it was like, Oh, here's the good old boy Wyatt club. All right. All right. right. So then I talked to some friends and ultimately got a hold of a lobbyist and, um, and you know, I, I'm really, I'm so grateful for him because, you know, he really kind of gave me a sense of purpose when I had no idea what to do with all this, you know? And, and I came to Austin we started meeting with legislators and, and we had honestly no idea what, what this was going to look like. It was just me telling my story over and over again. And Senator Huffman out of Houston, um, I mean, everybody is equally as appalled, but she came up with a language of expanding the definition of sexual assault to include this fact pattern. And, and she, you know, decreased it to a state jail felony just to not take away from forcible traumatic rape. And it would be per count. And this is retroactive. So what this did for me is that, you know, my story fuels this bill, but this is me having so much healing by making it bigger. So it was easier for me to kind of cast, you know, the doctor aside and be like, this is now my focus. This is what I am doing. And this is no longer about him. This is about protecting future people. This is about starting the conversation over other types of fertility frauds, because we got to start small to get the ball rolling, especially if you're going to get anything passed. That is what this is about. Thoughtful conversations about, you know, how can we change the topic of doing what is best for the donor conceived child instead of what is best for the existential transaction, which is the conception of them. So, so this meant a lot more for me and, and became a lot bigger for me. So very grateful for both of those people. I went every single, some, once, twice a week since January, you know, telling my story over and over again, getting support, um, raising awareness. And I went through the criminal justice committee for the Senate and it passed unanimously. And then I went to the Senate floor, passed, and then the criminal jurisprudence committee passed. So Governor Abbott um, of Texas, he tweeted out his support a few weeks ago. So now all we have left is just getting it on the calendar to be set to be heard on the House floor. Now, I feel like it's important to talk about the rest of the um, experience with this because there were so many 
roadblocks that could have stopped me. And, you know, these men saying, oh no, you're just not going to get done or those types of things. That same state representative, I, I met with him and told him what I was doing. And it's shocking to me that he hasn't lended his support because this is a nonpartisan bill. This is an easy bill to say, I support women's reproductive rights, right? Because it had very little, it's had essentially no opposition. Um, that man went and it's not even like controversial, like reproductive, (laughs) but like, so we're not talking abortion. We're talking about the right to not be, not have your doctor have a procedure done to you that you didn't agree to. Exactly. It should be a no brainer, but because this good old boy club, um, exists, that's kind of what I was going up against. Now that that other state representative I was telling you about th- that is friends with mine, his best friend is my doctor daddy. <sighs> so my state representative ran to that state re- representative, told him what I was doing, kind of gave him a heads up. So by the time I came to his office to just as a courtesy to tell him, he was like, oh, I've heard this story. <sighs> he lectured me for what? 20 minutes. He told me that I should be grateful because it looks like it all worked out well for me with this hand wow. gesture. And guys, these two experiences could have completely crushed me or shamed me or, you know, victimized me. But, but it, was, it was great for me because I was like, this is why I have to do this. This is exactly why I have to do this. I am privileged enough to do this. I have, you, you know, I'm, I'm in a good place to do, I, I have to do this. But it really kind of fueled the fire for me and, and kind of, you know, it, it was a long process, a painful process. But, but those two experiences really um, kind of pushed me towards that, the strength to do that. Are you doing, are you doing a movie? I feel like there has to be a movie on this. Right? With, with that scene. <laughs> like that, I can just see that now, scene where you're in the state representative's office and he's like lecturing you. And I just would feel so crushed. Right? But I love that you felt empowered yeah. by it and that, that fueled you to move forward. I did. You know, the standing up. Yeah, I can see it too, standing up and you just feel like, okay, watch me. Um, but it was, you're right, it was very empowering, but it also highlighted um, that that there needs to be more education with this and there needs to be more awareness around this. And there is so much shame associated with infertility and with being donor conceived or being a sperm donor um, and being doctor conceived. And, and so it did, it was a very, this has been empowering. This has been my therapy. And, um, my gosh, I'm almost there. I just got to get those last votes. <laughs> right. Ah, oh, that's awesome. So tell us about your continued relationship with Steve then. I mean, obviously oh, that has not, what I really love about this story is that that does not seem to have impacted that. No, I think if anything, it's really, it's brought us closer together. And there's something really beautiful about, you know, going through tragedy and then being grounded in love from that tragedy. And what what I did, I started to notice is that, you know, the people that were surrounding me and supporting me, they were not the people in Nacogdoches. They were not my biological father. They were Steve, my mom, my sister, my husband, all these other people. And, um, and you, you know, it was really important for me to pay attention to that when I was so conflicted with, with what I was doing and so confused about what to do. Um, he was such a source of support and strength. And I think that really speaks volumes to his character because he is such a wonderful person. And, um, you, you know, that's what I want in my life. He is a positive that, um, you know, you know, he adds to my life and, you know, we've been able to overcome this and, 
you know, it, it, it's a tragic story, but it's, you know, we've, we've somehow been able to make it beautiful again. And I think one of the most amazing things about your story is kind of this exploration of the complexity of who was family, of biology being right. meaningful, but there being something else that's amazing, of choosing who our family is. So it sounds like Steve is still your dad. Is that, would you say that? He is. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, my experience is my experience and and it is what I believe. But I also strongly believe um, what a lot of donor conceived people um, believe as well is that it is powerful. There is a need, there is this invisible string to know and identify your biological parents. And I'm also, you know, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I think it's important. Um, This makes people cringe, especially recipient parents, Um, you know, ending donor anonymity and just giving an offspring the space to, to be able to explore that and what it means for them and to be able to connect with those people in a loving way that I recognize can be hard, but he is family. It can absolutely be a choice. It has been a choice for me. And, um, and, and, and it's been a great choice and, and it's been, it's been wonderful. I liked my story way better before all of this, but you know, we somehow got back on, you know, on track and it's been very powerful to see that, um, you know, it can, it's, it's just, it comes down to love and connection. Right. I mean, I feel like that's the word that sums up your story is that in the face of complications and adversity, that it's powerful what came out of it and that you drew power from it to to make a powerful story and help others. Right. And I think that, you know, that's a lot what dad and I talk about is, you know, how can our story help other people? Because they may have a similar, um, you know, story or they may just take one piece of the story and get strength in it or clarity within it. And, you know, I think, I think that, that that's great because I know that there were a lot of people that I'd found on Facebook um, groups and things like that, that when I was trying to organize everything and assimilate and accommodate this into my identity and my life, I took all the bits and pieces and advice that they gave me and I was able to arrive at the destination that I am now. And, you know, the journey has been painful, but it's, it's, it's worked out. How did his his the doctor's biologically related children that you had connected with? How did they react? Are they kind of teaming with you on this? No, they're not. They have no. And in fact, um, tragically, they have chosen no longer to speak with me. Um, one of them is because his wife doesn't want us to communicate. Um, but that's oh, just a whole other story. Um, and the other one who still lives in the community has, um, has very much sided with, with the doctor, even though they don't have a relationship. Um, he was not very happy that I came forward. So, you know, that, that's and this us. is the, the social child as well. Oh, no, no. The social children. I haven't, oh, no. I haven't had any contact with the social children. So okay. I, I, I have no These idea. These are not social children. These are basically children, who, people, not children anymore, people who their parents were likely deceived as well. Right. So exactly. One, the older one, I, I'm pretty sure was a legitimate donation from his medical school days. Just because of the age difference, the other one was not. But the middle one's mother maintains, I chose a local donor. I don't care who it is. He's an amazing man. 
a little bit different from my story of, you know, going and finding the donor my parents consented to, my mother explicitly saying no local donor to his local donor program. So again, the circumstances were a little bit different. And, you know, my mother and I were no longer in that community and they are in that community. What's been interesting to see here is how um, how the community ha- really has uh, circled their wagons around him. And, you know, not all of them, I would say it's kind of split, but, you know, I think that that can parlay into a different, um, you know, topic of victim shaming, victim blaming right. and rape culture, but we'll save that one for a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. And he's still practicing medicine. He is. He is still practicing. And I, you know, we haven't filed a complaint with the medical board. Um, there's been no talk of anything like a lawsuit. Um, because I truly wanted to communicate that what I am doing forward and moving forward with has nothing to do with him. This is not a personal vendetta. I had a duty to inform um, other victims. If there were other victims, I was not going to be able to reach them in any capacity except for going public and coming forward. And what if I have a half sibling or in another victim to this who is struggling with the same medical issues that my son was, and this is the missing piece? You know, that experience spoke a lot to me because, wow, I would have been so thankful if someone could have told me this earlier. So, you know, I, I did. My duty to inform is done. Now the focus is on going through with legislation and then advocating for donor-conceived rights to the right that they have to their identity and, you know, hopefully kind of breaking through the barriers and the stigma and, you know, having everyone have a open and safe place to be able to kind of tease all this apart and then everybody can come out and, and it'll just be a loving relationship within everybody. <laughs> so I'm going to stick and maintain my Disney princess. <laughs> and I, I know that others have really been reaching out to you. I mean, there's so many people now yes. are finding out that they were donor, not just donor conceived, but doctor conceived. And I right. feel like because of your public position and fighting for this bill that others have found you, how do you right. feel about kind of being, being the leader in this and kind of, I mean, I know you have a counseling right. background, thank God. Right. <laughs> I know. It's finally serving me well. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's been interesting. It's, it's been very validating for me because you know, I can appreciate the journey that I've taken to arrive where I am now. And, um, I, I remember being in, in that place of finding out and, you know, being able to tell someone, let's process through the illegitimacy part of this. And, you know, what are your goals for this? And it's very difficult to hear that there's nothing to be done because now you're internalizing that you're a victim, but how can you kind of break away and out of that victim um, place? And, and what can you do with it instead of just sitting with it? And um, that's been very encouraging and validating for me to be able to lend my support to, um, to people who are struggling, whether it's, you know, just with finding out that they're donor conceived when they're 20, 30, 40, 50, or that they're doctor conceived. And, you know, I, I kind of, I have this, this program that worked well for me here. Let me share it with you. Maybe you can take bits and pieces of this and maybe that will contribute to your journey. So ultimately you can end up in a very emotionally healthy way and your relationships can remain intact. And, um, yeah, so it, it's been interesting. Never thought I'd be here, but here I am. <laughs> right. Do you have advice that you give to others about how to, like, steps to handle this information? Do you recommend for every donor conceived person that they immediately DNA test? I mean, what? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> 
Um, well, I mean, what I first like to do is I, I like to hear the person's story and and to really kind of look at, at all the key players in their life. And I think it's important to pay attention to a recipient parent. You know, for me, I didn't have a, a father that was still there that, that I had to be protective of. And I feel like a lot of donor conceived offspring, they feel like they had to be protective of that biological parent that they're, that they're not biologically related to. And I think it's important to pay attention to that, but also to really um, try and help them see you have a right to your identity. And if you, if this is something that you want to do, how can you get your parents in a loving and a supportive place to aid you on that journey? Because that's really important. The way that I approach this is a very, it's a slow process um, because there are so many emotionally challenging things, but, um, but yeah. And then, and then I, I answer their questions, you know, are you wanting to do something um, in a legislation point if if you're, if your doctor conceived or if your donor conceived, yes, test, um, reach out to the people. If, if you feel that strong desire to know your biological connection, do it trust it and have the conversation with your parents and hopefully they are open and honest and supportive. Um, but I think it can be done in a non-threatening way and in a supportive way. And I think it's really important for that, but some people don't really, they're not interested in that and that's okay. Each person's journey is incredibly unique. And as far as my best advice, uh, don't fry bacon naked. Ah! I love it. Oh my God. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to stop here with you. I'm going to hit stop here and we're actually going to try to add Steve in so that we can hear his story here. So hold on one second. We're going to take a little like, I don't know, like theme music, like stopping here. Steve, welcome to the show as well. We're so grateful that you could join us and share, share your side and your perspective of this really um, amazing and dramatic and twisting story that has right. happened to, to you and to Eve. Um, just to begin, Steve, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and where you live and why you chose to be a, a sperm donor? Sure. Uh, so I um, currently live in Oxnard, California. I'm a kind of um, an Oregon boy, but that's where I was raised and I have been living there the last 25 years or so. But I, um, I'm kind of a intellectual, uh, nerdy kind of guy who likes, um, inter- um, I'm really interested in world religions. And so that's what I've done my academic studies in. And politics and film, so we've and heard. Politics and film. <laughs> yeah. So we it's heard. on your profile. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's what I put down to the to the cryobanks questionnaire because mm-hmm. I uh, I thought if I put down that uh, I was really interested in in religion and it was just too hard to explain. But I'm yeah. also very interested in politics and film. Mm-hmm. Those are two there of my go. real passions. And um, I'm. I mean, I got, I got, I walked into this because I had come back from a year in, living in, in Cairo, Egypt, wow. oh, where wow. I was trying to learn Arabic. And I moved to Los Angeles and I got a, a part-time job with a publishing company. And so I got interested both in publishing at that point, uh, but I was not making any enough money to make it in LA. Um, and so, you know, one day I, I saw this poster on a, 
on a lamppost saying, be a sperm donor and mm-hmm. pays well. And so, <laughs> so that's what I, you know, uh, I was like, well, that's, I know how to do that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go. I, I, I became a sperm donor for, oh, you know, not quite a year. And uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it, it was primarily, a, a, you know, this little side money that I, you know, that allowed me to go to, to concerts and, uh, and film and so forth and, and just have a little pocket cash. So that's so how what it was your understanding at the time? Did they, what was the level of disclosure as to what could happen in the future? Did you, I mean, did you think through the, the ramifications at that point? Uh, kind of, but not really. I mean, they, they, um, Part of their story was that this, uh, that the uh, my my deposits could be used for uh, to help couples with who are having trouble conceiving. Uh, the uh, it could also be used for genetic research and other other fun, other forms of uh, scientific research. And I didn't really think about it all that much. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, and then I never heard another word. You know, nothing ever happened. You know, until 13 years later, when I get this phone call from them saying, hi, this is, you know, um, the California Cryobank. We're updating our records. Are you the Stephen Scholl, who was a, a donor in 1984? And I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, that's me. And um, I, you know, I'm, they didn't even hint that that one of my genetic offspring, which is the endearing Right. Yeah. For, uh, Good for them. Uh, the straight yeah. face. So just doing an update. Yeah, just right. doing an update. And then and then just like ten days later they they, they emailed me with um, notification that Eve was looking for me. And the, the deal was that you know I signed a document that said I have the right to have no interaction or I can't have interaction with any of my um, yeah, children okay. come up. So how I did was that? Like, how did that feel when you heard a, a child genetically related, not child anymore, but genetically related person to you was looking yeah, for you? I was uh, I was really interested. I was really keen and thought it would were, be. Um, were you married at the time? Had a different family at the time? What was I, what was your I family was, structure like at that time? I was married at the time and had um, had you know three kids uh, with my now ex wife Janice and. Um, just kind of having, just living our lives in beautiful Ashland, Oregon. Yeah. Had you, did you told have that her? conversation with her? Yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> you were a donor before? Yes, I, I did. I, I, before we married, I said, mm-hmm. oh, hey, by the way, I was a donor. And um, Janice's history was her mom died when she was seven. And um, her father eventually remarried and she had sort of a, um, a difficult relationship with the stepmother and the step siblings and so she this whole thing was like I, I I'm not I'm not interested I don't want to be involved in this so, so and um, so it was you know she kind of reluctantly uh, accepted the news mm-hmm. and, um, and, and and was always you know kind of like oh you know that's your thing you do that but she came around at the wedding when we, we finally, you know, we went down to Cabo San Lucas for Eve and Blake's wedding yeah. and where she got to meet, meet Eve and Margot and uh, everybody else. And 
I think uh, Janice and Margot hit it off pretty nicely. And, and so she's kind of turned around and now is very, very supportive. Wow. But you'd been talking to Eve for almost a decade at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I flew to Austin a couple of times and, you know, we, we got together. So, but it was, yeah, but it was, it was kind of my, <laughs> my little thing. We didn't, we didn't tell the kids for a while. Like, uh, and, uh, Janice was concerned how they would respond, especially my daughter, Willa. But, um, I mean, it was classic, you know, so, so finally I'm flying out to, to Texas to, to meet Eve and, and we realized, okay, we need to tell the kids what's going on. Yeah. So Janice says, dad has something very important to tell you tonight. <laughs> so this is just before dinner. Mm-hmm. So we're at the dinner table and I said, well, you know, when, when I was, you know, younger man, I, I was a sperm donor and I'm, flying to Texas to meet one of my kids. And Willa, you know, kind of hears it. And I said, do you have any questions? And everyone, and Willa goes, well, that's kind of cool. What are we doing for, what are we doing for dinner? You know, and, and so so I, I, look, I kind of looked at Janice and, you know, kind of gave her that look like, this is the crisis that this is yes. going to gender. And they, they just rolled with it. And they, um, they adore Eve and, and, uh, and, you know, so we. How old great, were they when they had this? Oh, when they so let's see. Dinner? So, two thousand uh, five. So, uh, Quinn was very young. Uh, Quinn, Quinn is my youngest. He's now twenty. So, you know, they they. Uh, I think my, my oldest, Dylan, was maybe uh, twelve, and Willa was eight. Mm-hmm. Quinn was four, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so obviously, Eve was a huge part of your life and then and then there came the moment when she kind of realized that she wasn't you know i mean as all of the ancestry.com stuff kind of started to come about um you know and she's been very open that that was actually really that you were so incredible and so supportive to her during that time and which is something she really needed and loved but from your perspective when you went to go spit in that cup what what was all of that like for you, because your story also changes trajectory there. And we did not discuss with, with her, you know, as much about that. Well, when I spit in the cup, it was, um, I was still thinking, oh, you know, this is going to lead to the next Hmm. round of discovery of potentially three more of my, my kids. Right. And so I was just kind of, kind of anticipating this. And then uh, something that we had a snafu with, with ancestry.com and my kit didn't show up and oh. I had to reorder it. And then, um, and then be, be, after the kit had come and I had sent it in, but hadn't got the results back, that's when Eve called me, um, and said, you know, tearfully, you know, um, I don't think you're my dad. And oh. that's when things really shook up, you know, how I mean, did you, yeah. how did that feel or how did you react? to Well, that? it was, a, it was a kick in the gut. Um, yeah, yeah. At the same time, and I think way I, I, way I put it to Eve on the phone as we were sort of you know teary with each other mm. is that okay, honey, listen, this does change something in our relationship that we have to you know wrap our heads around and our hearts around, but it doesn't change the fact that you know I, I'm your dad and I'm not going anywhere and. Um, and really, at that point, I just said, "What do you want to do? How how do you want to respond to this?" And 
and she was like, you know, I want to, you know, I want to get this story out. This is wrong. And um, basically, you know, I mean, the, the immediate question that hit, I think everybody was how, how, how often did he do this, you know? And, and, yeah. and then is this something, I mean, I still feel that he's not been clear and forthcoming. And um, oh, I'm sorry, it, it gives me chills to think about how wrapped in love you made her feel during all of that. I mean, it just incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, uh, that's an easy thing to do <laughs> to love Aww. this woman. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, and I, and that's, um, I mean, really from, from the moment I first Googled her and saw her picture, I mean, this, this is, this is the, the, I mean, and I've really thought about this a lot since the unraveling of the story is that, I mean, the paternal feeling of this is my kid hit me so, so strongly when I saw, you know, first saw her photo before we talked and, and I had, all I had was her um, email to me with asking some questions and, and, and I, but I looked at that photograph of her and I said, I can see that she's my daughter. Wow. And so, um, and we have a photograph from her wedding where she and Blake are with me and Janice and my three kids and she's standing next to Quinn. And I look at, I look at that photograph and I show people that photograph and I say, I mean, just look how, how, how obvious it is that, that, I mean, Quinn and, and her, and, now you, I kind of go back to that and go, well, maybe not as much as, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it was a, it was a, it was really, that was really hard because um, yeah. we, we became, you know, in that 13 year period, we became family. We became, you know, father and daughter. And um, I, you know, I just absolutely treasure that. So. So Eve mentioned that as a result, though, after the ancestry, after your kit did come back, that you do have some other donor-conceived children. Do you do you have a relationship with any of those children? Um, ABC kindly they wanted to have you know something around that part of the story, so they flew Anton, my son Anton, out from Milwaukee. Oh, you never who is him. your twin, by the way? It's kind of it's <laughs> what? Oh. I mean, oh my god, Dad! The mannerisms are crazy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, there's no mistake there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I met Anton, and um, I have been in touch with another daughter who has a very complicated family story, um, and I just got an email from her right after the show. Uh, this past weekend, and she has been hesitant to to meet with me. She and so, but she's like, "Yeah, let's get together." So, um, and then the twins that I discovered uh, that oh, ABCs dropped that bomb on me during the film. Oh wow! <laughs> and um, I have not heard directly from them, but I've been in, in uh, frequent communication with their mother, and okay. um, we're hoping to have a family reunion sometime they're out here in california so um so of the six kids um i have i've been in touch with five of them or well three directly two almost and there's one one uh son 
who's out here who probably lives 20 minutes from where I live, but has not um, had any come back to, you know, I've reached out to him a number of times and, and that been, he doesn't seem to be interested in, in connecting. Interesting. And Eve, have you met any of these, these other six? I have not. We FaceTimed with Anton, but, um, but that's it. So um, that's, yeah, that's to, to be determined when that will happen. Right. I feel like this is just like the beginning, like this story has had so many twists and turns, but it's like also just like the beginning of the story too, for parts of it, that you're just now meeting these others. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a twisty turny story in that sense. Uh, there is, you know, there is the, the whole dark side of the story, the betrayal, the, you know, the, And it seems so complicated for both of you that where Eve is finding these other half siblings, but they're siding with the doctor and likely it sounds like your, your genetic offspring as well as maybe didn't know, or like they have complicated feelings about too, that makes them hesitate whether to meet with you or have further communication. Right. Well, I think for, you know, for us, this has been the the bar. This has been our only experience, and so you know it's a pretty it's a pretty high bar that we set. Mm-hmm. Eve, you guys, you guys both, your your bravery coming forward and sharing your story with the the world, and you know, as as Eve and I discussed a little off the air. I mean, trolls are mean out there, and so so the uh, you know your willingness to to come forward and and take that beating so that other people don't feel so alone. It is incredible. And we really appreciate that you guys have come on and talk to us. Thank you, Eve and Steve. I feel very special and honored that they both could take the time. I mean, especially Eve does so much work on, you know, making a difference in the world and it's been on 2020 and it's definitely, she counts as celebrity in my book. And I know, right. Steve made the time too. And their, their story is, you know, difficult, but amazing and I just am so impressed with how well they've dealt with with everything and continue to have a strong relationship yeah no it's really incredible and again back to the whole Father's Day thing that you know like your your family is who you love and who you make your family so I I think that is a, a really really beautiful you know showing of of exactly that so there are also people out there that we love and we always want to thank, but sometimes we forget to thank. Aside from um, our father, happy Father's Day, Father's Dad. Day, happy Father's Day, Dad. Yay. And to the uh, father of my children, Will, happy oh, Father's Day. Oh, right. I guess I should say happy Father's Day to Ryan, too. <laughs> you know, there's that, too. Whatever. <laughs> um, but there are other people that we should thank, too, like Chris at Work at Bird Studios. We have Lindsay and Amanda in our office who work so, so, so hard to... Um, make us not sound as ridiculous and definitely make us not look ridiculous some of the times. So <laughs> they, they mean a lot and we really appreciate it. And um, we, we love to hear from you all and to, to hear what you think about our podcast. And maybe if you want to give shout outs to your fathers, uh, give us a call at 303-997-1903. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you all as always for listening. 